All right. Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Grant us, Lord, the Spirit to think and do always such things as are pleasing in your sight, that we who without you cannot do anything that is good may by you be enabled to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, baskets this morning. The money's going to the uh, Milton Township. Carol's been wanting to have that happen for a little while here, so we'll make it happen this week, the Milton Township. Um, food pantry, okay. Any questions? They, um, downstairs, yes. Grab, grab a piece of cake. All right, let's take a look here. Any questions um, about First and Second Kings? Okay, so I thought it would be handy, thought it would be helpful um, to take a look at, at an infographic. I thought to myself, you know, there's all these kings and all this timeline and all this history, and uh, to see it portrayed graphically would really help us to sort out where we've been and where we're going. And I was gonna, I was gonna, uh, I was gonna read through the text and do it myself, and I thought you know what, I bet somebody, somebody's already done that. And uh, it turned out somebody had. So we have in front of you on the first three pages this um, first section, this first chunk of um, the kings of Israel and Judah. So let's, t- let's use this for just a moment to sort of review where we have been. Okay, We started um, first kings with David, right, the death of David. And there you see in that, that little circle to the left of the yellow circle, 1 Kings 1, Adonijah sets himself up as king, Solomon crowned. Remember that story? There's this political maneuvering to try and make that happen um, so that David's son Solomon would be on the throne rather than Adonijah. They have this handily color-coded, so a dark blue king is not a good king, a yellow king is a good king, and a light blue king is lukewarm. So, (laughs) did good, but he didn't tear down all the altars, that kind of a thing, right? Um, he, didn't, he, he kicked out his mother, but he didn't tear down all the altars. Okay, so um, 1 Kings 3, Solomon asks for wisdom. You see the prophets on the, on the right side there. Samuel is the prophet for Saul and David. Nathan is the prophet for David and Solomon. But then, you remember how the kingdom splits, right? Solomon, um, Solomon's grievous sin is that he loves other gods because he's led astray by, by his many wives. So the kingdom splits, and we have the ten tribes of Israel and the two tribes that are left for Judah, um, or the, the tribe of Judah, and then, and then the, the priesthood in Jerusalem. Um, and you can see the timeline as it goes along. Remember, you remember how this went. Look on the left side of page 2. The kings of Judah, we had a bad king, a bad king, and then we had a good king. We had, we had this sort of reprieve, this reprieve on, on the, third, the third king, and he reigned for a long time, 41 years, and then his son was also a good king. On the right side, you see how many kings of Israel there were. Um, it was a, it, it, and the litany, the litany in um, the book of, of first and second books of first and second kings is um, confusing, to, to say the least. Right? If you try and follow along, especially because the names often change. So, just as, as, as you're reading along, here's a tip: um, if you see the name, for instance, Joash, he might also go by Jehoash. Okay. All right? So, or uh, Joram might also go by Jehoram. Okay? So occasionally they put a J in front of the name of a king, and it's the same person. They don't tell you they're doing it. 
They don't tell you why they're doing it, but they do it just to confuse you. Okay. So uh, if you're reading along and you wonder, are we talking? Who are we talking about here? That that maybe that helps sort it out a little bit. But follow along on page two. You see all those kings. We didn't hear much about them. We just heard that they were bad. And then we get to page three, and on page three you have at the top of the list on the right side, Omri, uh, who is the first of this dynasty. His son is Ahab, and it's this dynasty that really brings Israel to its depths of uh, depravity. Okay, Ahab marries Jezebel. They worship other gods. But remember what the great, the the uh, the great, the great news, the good news, the gospel of the whole story is. Do you remember what the what the gospel of the story of Ahab is? What is it? Who shows up even when Ahab is at his worst? Elijah, okay, you all knew the answer, you just didn't want to be the one to say it, I know. Okay, all right. And you, and you, over there on the far right side, 1 Kings 18, this is what Elijah does. He kills all the prophets of Baal, right? He takes, takes him out on Mount, on Mount Carmel. Remember the, the scene, um, Ahab is, is uh, the, the rain is going to come, three years drought. Rain is on its way, the, uh, um, and, and uh, Ahab is up on the mountain having a meal, a covenant, a covenant kind of meal. And Elijah says, go to the city. And Elijah runs with super fast, puts on his, puts on his Nikes and runs ahead of Ahab. And um, now we have Ahab following Elijah just for a moment, right? There's this, there's this brief moment of, uh, of, of a turn when, the, when once again the, the prophet is there. But notice, this is really significant. Notice that where Elijah and Elisha are on this infographic. They're on the right side of the page. Okay, Israel, um, they're, they're, they're the section of the, the, unite, the, for, the previously united kingdom of Jacob's sons. They're the section that has gone away. They're the section that has departed from the reign of David. They've separated themselves from the Davidic line, right? But it's to them that the prophets, these prophets come, okay? Um, and that is, that is a, a striking thing. And it's also striking to note that throughout the book, maybe I told you this last week, throughout the books of First and Second Kings, Israel is never, is never called anything other than the, the brothers of Judah, right? The tribes of Israel are never um, disowned. They're never, um, they're, they're never taken, they're never considered to be um, removed from the promise that's given. In fact, we'll see that very explicitly uh, later on. Um, but yet the promise... The main promise that God's dealing with here has to do with the promise given to David, that a son will reign on his throne, right, and that it'll be in Jerusalem. And so on the left side, that's where we have uh, the Davidic line. Okay, on the right side, Ahab, here's a couple more, more stories. Ahab murdered Naboth for his vineyard. I don't remember if we, if we talked about that, that he, this poor innocent guy, um, and he steals his vineyard, and that was sort of like the last straw, and the prophet comes to him, Elijah comes and says, um, I'm not going to take it away from you because you repented but it's going to take it away from your son. And that was true of Ahaziah, okay? Now, Elisha comes along. We talked all about Elisha last week. Um, Elijah and Elisha are parallel to whom in the New Testament? John and Jesus, okay? And why is Elisha like Jesus? In what ways is Elisha like Jesus? He heals, okay? That's good. He heals lots of people. Uh, what are his means for healing often? Or what are his means for bringing healing? Water? Food? 
right? He raises the dead. Um, he brings a promise of life. And what Elisha does, Elisha does, that's different from what Elijah does, is Elisha starts to form around himself in, in the, among the people of Israel a group of faithful people, right? So if you want life, if you want to follow Yahweh, the Lord God, you are following Elisha. He's, he's where it's at, okay? Um, he's where the promise of life is heard. He's where life is received. And, um, and, and it's this beautiful thing because it's amidst all of this sort of chaos and all of this, this destruction. Now, um, at the same time, at the same time as Elisha is, is bringing this promise of life, he's doing another thing, um, which, which leads into the stories that we're going to study today, although it's already quarter after, so who knows what's going to happen. Um, he, as he brings life, he also divides. Okay? So this is, this is characteristic of Jesus, too. When Jesus comes and he heals and he forgives and he loves and he shows mercy and his compassion, it's this wonderful thing for the people who receive it. But for the Pharisees, for his family, for the people of Nazareth, it's a divisive thing, right? Um, if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting life, which means that you're choosing death. The same thing is true of Elisha. If you reject Elisha, if you reject his prophetic community, then you're rejecting life. And so just as Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, right? How can he say that? when all he seems to be doing is, is healing and loving and showing kindness and mercy, it's because that sword is, is sort of self-inflicted, right? It's this self-inflicted division. Um, and that's what, Elisha, um, that's what Elisha does. So although he, he does these, all these miraculous, wonderful things for the people, at the same time, this division arises. Now, let's see here. We need to turn the page. We're going to come back to this, come back to page three. There's not many pages, so... We can, we can get there. You can find it. We need to have a, a, just a brief flashback, though, to 1 Kings chapter 19. We didn't read this story, but you, I think you know the scene. Elijah's despairing because he seems to be the only faithful person left in Israel. He says, he says to God, I'm the only one. And, he, and God sends him up to this mountain, and then God, um, there's an earthquake and a great wind and all these things, and God is not in any of those, but he's in the, in the silence, in the still small voice. God says to him, it's going to be all right. I'm going to preserve a remnant, 7,000 people whose knees have never bowed to Baal. But he also says this to Elijah. The Lord said to him, verse 15, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, not all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So here's this, here, in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, we hear this prophecy. God tells Elijah about what's going to happen. There's going to be these fellows, Elisha, Hazael, and Jehu, and there's going to be a lot of death surrounding them. And it's very surprising when we get to Elisha and we find out that he's actually giving people lots of life. You wonder how that works. Well, it's precisely because of this division, right? So when Elisha brings good news to the people and he's rejected by the kings, their hearts are hardened, right? They're set against him. They're set against God. And so they're set up for 
the destruction that's coming, the destruction that's next in line. Um, we're going to hear about Hazael in just a moment and Jehu in just a moment. Things become much less subtle um, in, just, in, in just a moment, right? So with Elisha, the division, this, uh, this putting to death is in, sort of in the hearts of the people. It's in the hearts of the people who reject him and his promises. With Hazael and Jehu, it's actual death and destruction, okay? So hang on tight. We, I had to edit quite a bit of it because it's very bloody. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll get there. Okay, any questions? All right, so we left off at chapter 5 of 2 Kings. Now, um, there's a couple of things that happen. One of them is that the Syrians show up, and the Syrians um, are alternately known as the Arameans, more, more appropriately known as the Arameans, so you don't confuse them with modern-day Syria. Um, they uh, harass the people of Israel all the time. Ben-Hadad is their king, um, uh, and um, they, they're constantly you know, bugging the people of Israel and, and putting sieges on the cities of, the, of, of Israel. Well, in chapter 6, we have um, Elisha rescuing the people of Israel from, from the, the Syrians. And this is a great story. Read it if you get a chance. They come down, um, and they're, they're going to um, attack, the, attack the city of Samaria. And um, uh, it's, like, it's like in Star Wars when... Um, oh, this is terrible. It's like in Star Wars when... Okay. This is... Uh, Maybe, maybe Mary can edit this out later. It's like on Star Wars when uh, they, I don't know, I don't know what city they come into. This is good. Okay, and uh, who is it that says, Obi-Wan Kenobi says, these aren't the droids you're looking for, right? You know that line? You know that line, don't you? Okay, so, uh, these, the, so the Syrians are coming to attack the city of Samaria and Elisha prays and they're struck with blindness and he just, he just leads them away. <laughs> he says, come follow me. And, and here, here they are. Um, before the king, and the king says, what should I do? Should I kill them all? And Elisha says, no, don't kill them. Um, we're, going, we're going to spare them today. But, he, but his, it's, it's a great story. Read it, Read it uh, and enjoy it and think of Star Wars. Okay. <laughs> then in chapter 6, um, they come back again, and, and they put this siege on, a, a, a really brutal siege on Samaria. And if you know anything about sieges, especially in ancient warfare, they were... They were devastating, and accounts of sieges um, are, just, are just brutal. Uh, and that's true in 2 Kings. Um, you'll hear some things that are very unpleasant, right? The point, the point is um, that the kings of Israel, when faced with this, this external threat, don't look to the source of life. They don't look to the God who saves. They don't look to Elisha, God saves, right? They, they despair. Okay? And in, uh, in this story of the siege of Samaria, which continues through chapter 7 and, and into chapter 8, um, it's this remarkable turn, this flip upside down, that shows you how God saves the people. So we, we, I'll just give you a clip of it here. Uh, the, the Syrians are outside of Samaria, and terrible things are going on inside the city of Samaria. And then, see it underlined there, now there were four men who were lepers. Okay? And they sat at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, 
the king of Israel has hired against us in the twilight, and the kings of Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried off the things from it and went and hid them. Okay? So, um, who is it that saves the people of Israel, the, the people of Samaria from this siege? It's these, these four lepers, these four outcasts, right? These four lowly folks who have, who have nothing to offer to Samaria. It's not the king, it's not the army, it's these, uh, the, these least and the last of the city. Um, but it's precisely them that, uh, that bring the good news, that, that, tell, that tell how God has saved, um, saved the city of Samaria. Okay? Everybody on board so far? Okay, let's move on to chapter 8. Now, um, here we hear about Hazael. We, we, we had him prophesied in 1 Kings 19. And I just have to, you just have to inc- uh, include this uh, little section here so you understand, so you hear um, how Hazael takes over the kingship of Syria. Now, Syria plays a really important role for Israel because on the one hand, they're always harassing them. So they're kind of a thorn in the side of Israel. Um, but later when the people of Israel are exiled, right, um, in, some sense, in some sense their captors serve as their guardians. So um, sort of providing a, a place um, to preserve the promises. Remember, remember in chapter 5 the story of Naaman, the commander of the army of Syria, right? And he had this little, this little servant girl who was so faithful and said, I know a prophet who can heal you. I know, I know that in Israel... Uh, there's somebody who can make you better. Well, here's, uh, here's Hazael um, and the story of how he becomes king of Syria. Look on page 5, verse 7. Now, Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God. And inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from the sickness? Now, this is great. The king of Syria is inquiring of the man of God. That's, a, that's an amazing thing from a from a Gentile ruler. So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camels loads. And he came and stood before him and he said, your son, be- your son, your son Ben-Hadad, what, what humility, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. He will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. And he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face until he died. And Hazael became king in his place. It's a brutal story, okay? Gruesome. Um, but it's important for us to see how the prophecy that's given to Elijah is fulfilled here and what exactly it means, right? So the the clemency that God gives to the people of Israel, while it goes on and on and on, right? He sends them prophets who give, who bring, give them opportunities to repent. 
it won't go on forever. And in this case, the one who's going to bring, one of the agents who's going to bring an end to that clemency is Hazael, the king of Syria. And he is, um, although he didn't know it himself, uh, a treacherous man, right? And he's going to, and, and throughout the rest of, uh, uh, for large parts of Second Kings, he commits grievous crimes against the people of Israel. He, he um, attacks them and wars against them continually, okay? So that's Hazael. Um, and then we need, to, we need to meet Jehu. Everybody on board here so far? Any questions? Question. question. He killed him. Okay. Yep, Hazael killed him. Mur- hey, so, um, yeah. Yep, that's, that's what happened. Okay. Turn back to page three for a second. Now, I wish you could have page three and page five side by side. I suppose you could. You could rip, rip them apart. Um, but if you look on the left side of page three, we have um, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and then Ahaziah. Now... Ahaziah is um, for a little while. And on page 5, we hear about what, what happens to Ahaziah. He goes down to Jehoram, also known as Joram, king of Israel. They're side by side there on the column because Joram was sick. So they're kind of buddies, right? He goes down to see him. But this is kind of a big setup because what's, when Jehu becomes anointed, uh, well, maybe, I'll, maybe I won't read that story, but um, Jehu goes, goes down and assassinates both of them at once in the same place. Um, but I want you to see how, the, how, this, uh, how this timeline, how this genealogy works out. So Ahaziah dies. We're going we're gonna to hear that later. And his mother, Athaliah, who is the granddaughter of Omri, not, not, one, of the people, not one of the children of David, um, she murders everybody in her whole family and takes the throne for herself. Except for one person, Joash, who is hidden by... Athalia's sister, okay? So you've got this, it's like a soap opera, right? Um, but who, what, 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 what story does it remind you of in the Bible? Any stories? Moses, Moses. okay. So, and, and it makes sense. It makes sense that, uh, and, and, it, and it fits with um, the paradigm that we've been working with so far. Like, you remember, remember one of the, the things that I wrote on the board the very first day? That's not how I would have done it, right? So I wouldn't have done it by making the king who rebuilds the temple be somebody who had to be hidden from his, tre- his, his murderous mother and later brought to the throne at the tender young age of seven years old, right? I wouldn't have done it that way. But this is the way, this is the way God works salvation, um, through weakness and suffering um, and, 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 and what's what we could call left-handed power, not by means of, not by means of um, you know, an un- sort of an indefatigable um, monarchy where the succession is clear, right? It's not the case. The promise sort of seems to hang on by just a thread, all right, which makes the promise all the more precious. Because what does it mean? What does it mean if Athaliah maintains the throne of Judah? It means that the kingdom of David is done, right? It's over, okay? So um, let's turn back now. Um, to page 5. Chapter 9, we, we meet Jehu, who is perhaps one of the bloodiest people in the Bible. Read, read, this, read these chapters, 9 and 10, at your, at your own risk. Okay? Um, 
But hear, hear how it goes. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramath Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. And go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. <laughs> Good advice. So the young man, the servant of the people, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which, is, which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house. And the young man poured oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the, the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of, of the Lord, over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. Okay, so... In the first and second kings, there are, there are only three kings who are anointed, who, who we hear about being anointed. Um, do you know who the first one is? Do you remember who the first one is? Solomon. That's right. And, and it was kind of like this in, in many ways, right? It was, um, it was uh, a, a, a political maneuver, right? So he was anointed when somebody else was making, uh, making a play for the throne. The same thing is true uh, of Joash. When his mother has the throne, um, this is later, chapter 11, when his mother has the throne, his mother's, the, the priest brings him out and anoints him and says, this guy's the king of Israel, okay? This, the, Jehu is the third person to be anointed. Now, what's really not incidental is uh, that the Hebrew word for anointing is, has to do with, uh, it, it's translated as Messiah. So Messiah means anointed one. Okay, um, and why, the reason why this isn't incidental is because the ones that God anoints to fulfill His purpose, um, to to carry out His plan of salvation, um, are foreshadows of Jesus. Are foreshadowing Jesus? Okay, and so the question that we have to ask is, how is Jehu like Jesus? Okay, so I, I got to read. I, I I am going to read this next story to you because it. Uh, um, you just have to hear it, it's, and it's, it's, better, it's better heard than just read. So, uh, verse 14, I'm going to read this, and then I want, you to, I want you to think for a second. How is Jehu like Jesus? Not just in this story, but this story is paradigmatic for how Jehu deals with the, all of the sons of Ahab who uh, the, this prophet just said are going to die, right? Okay? Verse 14, page 6. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Joram with all Israel had been on guard at Ramoth Gilead against Hazael king of Syria, but King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael king of Syria. So Jehu said, If this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there, and Ahaziah king of Judah had come down to visit Joram. Remember, they're, they're there together, these two guys. Now the watchman was standing on the tower of Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet them, and let, and let him say, Is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, 
What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached them, but he is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again the watchman reported, He reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Joram said, Make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu, and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Remember Naboth, the guy who Ahab killed? Okay. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders, so that the arrow pierced his heart, and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidgar his aide, Take him up and throw him in the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of this ground in in accordance with the word of the Lord. And when Ahaziah the king of Judah saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblium. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him away in a chariot to Jerusalem. And he buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. Okay. That's not even the half of it. Okay. Um, Jehu is... Is, is executing judgment on, the, on the, the kings of Israel. There was, uh, do you remember the reading this morning from, uh, if you were in church at 8.30, anybody have their service folder handy by chance? Can I borrow that mic? You hear this in Jeremiah. Jeremiah comes a little later. Um, but, the, but, the, but the warning against the kings, the, those who are supposed to shepherd their people that we hear in Jeremiah is being fulfilled here also. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, right? Woe to those kings who allow these altars to be set up to false gods. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Here's the good news, and this is what we see, what we're waiting for in the rest of First and Second Kings, and waiting for in the rest of the Old Testament. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of them, out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Okay, so he is dealing justice, um, dealing vengeance on the, on the kings of Israel. So if Jehu was doing what he was told to do, why is he basically in the category of did evil in the eyes? Because just like lots and lots of these guys, they, they start out pretty well, but then they sort of peter off at the end of their lives, right? So he did, he did he, so this is how the kings are often described. He was a good king in that he didn't walk in the ways of Ahab and Jezebel, but 
he didn't tear down all the altars. Okay? And that's, that's true of Jehu. So here he has a specific purpose to fulfill, and he does it with precision and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and takes, care of, takes care of the problem, right? But he, doesn't, he isn't a faithful king in the end. Okay? So now here's the really tough question. Here's the really tough question. How is Jehu like Jesus? Or how is Jesus like Jehu? Okay, that's good. That's a good start. He comes, he comes to fulfill a promise of God. Now, this promise is a really painful promise. It's a promise of death, right? Do you remember what's stronger than a promise of death? A promise of life, right? Okay. Those, I hate those questions. I hate getting asked those questions. Um, so when, when Jehu kills the sons of Ahab, when he, when he destroys the Amride dynasty... And he kills all of the kings and the people who are setting up uh, altars to false gods and leading the people of Israel astray. What is, the, what is the corollary of that? What is he doing for the faithful community that's following Elisha? Yeah, he's bringing life to the community, the, the, the community that's, that's faithful to the remnant, to those who've heard the word of the prophet and have believed it, right? So uh, when, when Jesus comes and he says to the, to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, right? When he speaks these words that we, can't, we, we have a hard time imagining our dear Jesus speaking, right? It's for, the sake of, it's for the sake of his sheep, to protect them, right? To, to bring life to them, to guarantee life for them. Um, it's for the sake of the remnant. It's for the sake of the faithful, that Jehu carries out this, this, this justice. And so in that way, in that way, Jehu is like Jesus. Okay? Bill. It kind of reminds me of, of the Jehu's zeal to do what God told him to do. Like you said, he did it with precision and energy. It reminds me of Jesus in the temple when it says the zeal of the Lord consumed him and he exactly. overturned the money That's right. That's right. Exactly. Yep. And, 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 um, who, was, who was Jesus uh, sort of uh, bringing judgment on then? It was those who, were, those who were trading in grace, those who were using God's free gift of forgiveness as a means to make money, right, as a means to their own, their own benefit. Okay. Um, I was wondering, if, are Joshua, Yehu, and Jesus the, the names all coming from the same root? Um, the, the thing that they, that they have in common is the J, the J-E at the beginning, right? Or the, 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 um, at least the J with a vowel. In Hebrew, vowels are kind of, they, they aren't there. So um, the, J, the J is the important part. Um, and that refers to God's name, okay? Now, um, what's different about Joshua and Jesus is that the name is, it has to do with God's saving. Um, that's not the case with Jehu. I don't know what Jehu means, um, um, I'll have to have to look it up. But I would say it would. I would think it would be a, uh, a significant literary device. Yeah, absolutely. To uh, indicate that they were all anointed by God and that this man had something to do. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, you see, you, this, that's exactly why um, the you, all of these names ha- have to do with Yahweh, with 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 Yah. That's right, Bruce. In, in, in the Greek. 
Joshua refers to Jesus and Joshua. They use the same, same word, yep. In Greek That's right, yep. And since Jesus doesn't have a name in the Old Testament, I mean, right. refer to So Joshua and is probably well, who we call Jesus. That was his Hebrew name. Yeah, yep, yep. Or something, something like that, right, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Okay, now I promised Philip, Philip five minutes. Is, five, five minutes, is that what? Okay, then i got to quit now. Three minutes, you say? Okay, then... then uh, <laughs> no, no, no worries. Um, uh, that's okay. We get, we'll pick up at chapter 11 next week. It's okay. We can, we can, we can slow down. That's all right. Philip, would you please come forward? Uh, you, you all know that Philip um, has been a, a, a faithful organist here for, for many, many years now, and he and his wife are um, headed off to another thing. But Philip wanted to mention, make an announcement. Yes. Uh, first of all, I wanted to say thank you to all of you for welcoming us into the parish and for being such an incredibly supportive and loving and caring congregation. It's been a great place to be a member and a great place for not only to be baptized, but a great place for us to be married. Thank you as well for seeing so Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. It really is inspiring and makes you want to play better and sound better when you hear singing like we have here. And it's really wonderful. We're going to miss you all quite a lot, but the new organist who's coming here is better than me. He did his undergraduate at Northwestern and his master's at Notre Dame. I auditioned at Notre Dame. I didn't get in there. So he <laughs> is a heck of a player, and I think uh, next Sunday y'all will be very happy. Um, I just wanted to say a few words about the concert on Thursday night. Uh, it's being put on by Credo Music, which is a Christian organization dedicated to promoting the musical and spiritual development of young musicians. So there will be an orchestra of about 15, which will be all college and high school students who are auditioned and got into the program this summer, and then 15 professional soloists from Indiana, Oberlin, Curtis, Juilliard, a bunch of other good schools. And so this is a great opportunity to hear all six Brandenburg Concerti. And uh, the concert will be about two hours long because we're doing all of them. Uh, it's a great opportunity for children because Bach wrote on the title page concertos for various instruments. So none of the instrumentation in the six is the same. The first is featuring trumpets and horn. The second has flutes and three different kinds of oboes. The third has triple violins, violas, and cellos, and so on. So any instrument that you or your child plays will pretty much be represented on Thursday night, and you'll get to hear some really good music. So if you want to come, that's at 7 p.m. in the nave. The instrumentalists will be in the chancel, so you'll get to see everyone and hear everything. And admission is free, and it should be a lot of fun. Again, thank you so much. Thank you, Philip. It's been a good three years. On that great note, let's conclude with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.